There we go. Welcome, everybody. Here we are, week 36 of the Chabura. Uh, thank you all for making it. For those who are here for the first time, uh, the Sfardi Chabura is a virtual and soon to be, please God, semi-physical Beth Midrash with international membership. And we're dedicated to the classical Sephardi approach. Please do check out our YouTube page, the Sephardi Chabura, uh, for many of our classes. Uh, I do some housekeeping for the week, uh, every week when we start. Um, we're very excited to launch the second edition of our quarterly journal in the coming weeks. Uh, the second journal, it follows the release of our successful first edition, if you remember, in January. Uh, a link to it will be posted in the chat section so everyone can see that. Uh, and we're very excited about the second edition. We've got a lot of our teachers and guest contributors writing essays as well as some of the a select few of the Talmudim. I also want to remind everyone that Rabbi Dweck's new series begins next week. Uh, it will be delving into the various writings of Harambam to present different principles that make up the Jewish framework, but we'll be going through everything from the Moreh to his letters, Vishneh Torah, et cetera, et cetera. And moving on to tonight's class and the reason we're all here together, I'm actually going to begin with a quick personal story. I have a tendency to do that uh, when the speaker uh, has influenced me. Uh, over a decade ago, uh, as, as I'm sure a lot of the people in the Chabura know, uh, I began my journey studying more and more about the roots of the Sephardi Mesorah and how exactly it was that Hachmei Sefarad essentially built upon uh, many of the principles of Hazal and the Geonim. So I tried to read as many books as I could, speak with as many Hachamim as I could, and of all the writings that I came across, I have to say the most influential in my journey was without doubt the writings of Hacham Jose Faur, Alava Shalom, who was a giant of our generation, who was Niftar less than a year ago. Uh, as the old cliche goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, tonight, we are so, so honored to learn from Hacham Faur's son, Rabbi Abe Faur. He's the rabbi of congregation Ohel David in Shalomon in New York City. Rabbi Faul was ordained by Rav Modachai Eliyahu and Rav Abraham Shapira. He teaches Talmudic and rabbinic thinking in accordance with the Andalusian Hachamim and the teachings of his father, the great Hacham Faul, who many of us in the Chabura know about. Rabbi Abe has studied various scientific and philosophical disciplines, and he has a fantastic array that I highly recommend of Torah content available on his YouTube page if you just search Torat Andalus on YouTube. Uh, Rabbi Abe, we're also honored that he, you know, he's agreed to uh, be a Talmud teacher for us for the exclusive curriculum that will be starting in July. Uh, we'll be launching details of this exclusive curriculum and the general membership program in the coming months. And some of us within the Chavara, we look to Rabbi Faur, uh, to our guest tonight, when we're wanting to gain insight into the world of our classical Sephardi Hachamim, I think uh, one of the very few that we can turn to, uh, to learn more about our Mesorah. So it's, it's a real treat and honor, a pleasure on behalf of everyone here to have you here with us live tonight, Rabbi Faur, Bechavod. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Sina. And I actually would like to start by uh, taking this opportunity to thank Sina for setting this up, to thank Avi Garcon for setting up this excellent media for Talmud Torah so that we can study Torah together. It's really wonderful. Um, uh, thank you also to Rabbi Dweck, uh, Joseph Dweck, for providing the spiritual leadership, um, which I guess served as a catalyst for this project. So um, that's, that's important to recognize the efforts of everyone involved. And I'm sure there's other people involved. I just don't know their names, so I haven't mentioned, uh, mentioned them. 
but thank you to those people as well. Um, I want to uh, give a word about myself. I am the son of Hakam Faur, as uh, Sina mentioned, um, but credit goes to my father. Um, I'm, I, I, I don't wish to sound uh, like I'm trying to be humble, but the truth is I, I, I was just blessed and my father taught me a lot. Um, I'm in a unique situation to provide this class uh, because I studied Gemara with my father for many years and uh, even decades. Um, in fact, the only thing that we studied together more than Gemara was the guide to the perplexed of Harambam. So um, I was blessed in that way. Um, and you know, about my father and how it's connected to this class, my father may have been perhaps the last link in the chain of the Geonic and Delusion traditions. Um, and the principal feature of this was a particular approach to the study of Gemara. And what I want to do in this, in this class and in the next class is I, I want to describe to you what this approach was and what this approach is. I use the word approach loosely. Perhaps you can imagine with me going in a time machine and meeting the pupils of the great Athenian philosopher, Socrates. Let us say that in the room with us is uh, Euclid of Megara, Phaedrus the Athenian, and perhaps Socrates the Younger. And we're talking with these uh, philosophers, we're speaking to them about the various approaches, there I use that word again, the approaches to understanding the Socratic dialogues. Uh, the Socratic dialogues are written by Plato, but nevertheless, we're having this imagination. Or how about the apology of Socrates? Um, and imagine their reaction when I tell them or one of you tells them um, there is the Polish approach to studying Socrates. There is a Lithuanian approach to, stu to studying Socrates. There is the French approach to studying Socrates. Um, I think you would agree with me that it may be a painful imagination that we are undertaking because they would look at us um, perhaps with disbelief and say, what are you talking about? We are the students of Socrates. We can tell you what Socrates was about and what his teachings were about. And we are in a unique position to do so. Um, so I didn't mention the streaming of consciousness because I wanted to cause anybody discomfort, but I wanted to emphasize a point and it's not a subtle point. The Geonim, we speak about the Geonic approach to studying the Talmud. Um, well, here's the thing. The Geonim were physically in the same buildings where the yeshivot of the Talmud were. They were in the buildings of Sura. They were in the buildings of Pumedita. They lived in the same cities that the authors of the Talmud inhabited. They spoke the same language. They had the same semantic orientation. They had the same culture. They had the actual physical text of the Talmud. Interesting. They were the direct students of the authors of the Talmud. So how would they feel if we spoke to them about the different approaches of studying Talmud? They would be perhaps a bit incredulous um, and they wouldn't take that seriously. So what I wanna tell you today is I don't like the word approach. I don't like the word approach personally. And in this regard, I can tell you that the wisdom of the Geonim went directly to Andalusia, Spain. 
So when we speak about the Geonic approach or the Andalusian approach to studying Talmud, it's kind of like saying, this is the approach the students of Socrates took to the study of Socrates, but you know, there's other approaches. Um, so I know that sounds a bit harsh, but I'm just putting it out there because we are now looking to understand the Talmud. And I wanted to give you the proper context to understanding what I mean when I say the Geonic and Andalusian study of the Gemara. These were the direct Talmudim of the authors of the Gemara. So perhaps we should give this particular um, methodology a credence that it has not received until today. So if you look at the Jewish world and those of us who study Talmud, and God bless all of them, because I think it's wonderful that the Talmud study has become so pervasive and almost ubiquitous. But I think it's important also to return back to the Talmudim, the students of those who authored the Talmud and see what they have to say about the Talmud. And I think if we do so, we may, uh, we may end up in a very good place. So, another point. Um, we are Westerners, we are all products. I think many of us or most of us, I don't know everybody on this, uh, in this group, but we are Westerners. And it is close to impossible for a Westerner to study Talmud, unless, unless she or he is willing to shift his or her perspective and shift one's intellectual horizons. The Talmud is first and foremost a text. The concept of text as used in rabbinic thinking is foreign to Western categories of thought. Now, this presents a challenge as we are all Westerners, as I noted. So how can I convey then those ideas which are necessary to study the Talmudic text? It is challenging, but fortunately for us and for the organizers of this group, Sina, Avi Garcon, it is not impossible. And in fact, I will attempt within the context of these brief classes to guide you to those new perspectives, to those new intellectual horizons, which will then allow you to adopt a more sober attitude towards the study of Talmud, a more authentic attitude towards the study of Talmud. But I need to find a bridge. I need to find something in Western intellectual traditions that will serve as a bridge for Westerners to now enter the minds of the authors of the Talmud to understand their particular way of thinking, or perhaps understand something about their particular way of thinking. And I think that that bridge exists. My father wrote about it. And this is why he wrote the book, Golden Doves with Silver Dots. I know it's hard to see because the camera is not very good, but it's here in my hand. Trust me when I say so. It's a book that does exactly that. And the bridge that I will use is textuality. I will discuss textuality a bit more later. Okay, let's begin with some historical context. First of all, what is the Talmud? I wanna to try to summarize it for you in a sentence or two. And that's actually the easy part of this class. The Talmud is a collection of formal discussions that took place at the yeshivot in Babylonia. Modern day Iraq, um, you have the Euphrates River, you have the Tigris River and over those rivers, there were great commercial centers, and in those commercial centers, there were yeshivot, 
in these yeshivot, they have discussions. The Talmud is the recording of these discussions. But let's be perhaps a bit more uh, precise, because actually there are two Talmuds. One was produced in the land of Israel that is known as the Yerushalmi Talmud or the Palestinian Talmud. Uh, that was completed around the year 400 CE. And then you have the other Talmud, which is the subject of, this, of, of these classes. That's the Babylonian Talmud. This was uh, concluded in the Persian Empire around the year 600 CE. That's called the Talmud Babli or the Talmud of Babylonia. As noted, the Talmud contains those discussions that took place in the Yeshivot in Babylonia. But what are Yeshivot? When I use the word Yeshivot, for example, today, in the modern context, it doesn't have the same meaning as the word Yeshivot in the context of Talmudic thinking. So we have to understand, first of all, we have to accept that there's a misalignment between the semantic connotation of a yeshiva and the semantic orientation of the yeshivot of Babel. So what were they? These were actually national institutions of Israel. They were national universities for academic level studies of the laws of Israel. Now, here's what made these universities, the Babylonian yeshivot, different than modern day universities. These universities, the Babylonian ones, also included within them uh, legislative authority. They could legislate. And they had judicial authority, not all of them, but the main one in any generation. So again, there was the legislative authority and the judicial authority. I will elaborate on this uh, because there is no counterpart that I'm aware of in the Western world. I'm not aware of a counterpart to the Babylonian yeshivot in any of the national or academic institutions in the Western world. For example, in the USA, you have law schools. These law schools are not national institutions, right? They're there to uh, teach law to young legal scholars. Now, you can have the best law school in the world with the finest legal scholars, and yet they have no authority to legislate. They have no authority to interpret. They may interpret the laws and their interpretations may actually be the accepted interpretations, but what makes an interpretation of the law binding or not is not what the professor of law said. It's what the courts in the given country say. So the national courts have the, have the right to interpret the laws. In the United States, you have Congress. The Congress legislates the laws, right? So the laws are proposed, the laws are discussed, they're drafted, they're agreed to, and then finally they're ratified. In the United States, you have the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't legislate laws, they interpret the laws and then they apply the laws to the particular case. So again, a law professor, brilliant though he may be, is not a judge sitting in the Supreme Court and is not a legislator sitting in Congress. So, whereas in the American system, you have these three independent institutions, in Babylonia, you had the yeshivot. The yeshivot represented not only institutions of learning, 
but there were institutions where there was the authority to legislate, to make gezerot, to make tekanot, takanot, to interpret the laws. And these interpretations, these legislations were binding upon the Jewish people. Um, and I just want to be a bit more precise. Again, it wasn't all the yeshivot that had this national authority with respect to legal matters, but it was the most prominent of the yeshivot which had this authority. So that's the first point. So um, now in addition, and this is a point that I'm going to discuss a little more later, the yeshivot not only um, interpreted the laws, legislated the laws, studied the laws, but there were also the formal bodies that received the laws from the previous generation and had the authority to transmit the laws to the next generation. Meaning it's not just the fact that they could legislate. It's not just the fact that they can interpret, but they have the right to say, this is the law. And we know it because of A, B, C, right? So they had that authority. Um, so this is the, Israelite system of law, combining the study of law, the law school, with the judicial branch, with the legislative branch, all in an institution called the yeshiva. So we can have um, discussions on whether this holistic approach is better than the Western approach. In the Western approach, you have separate branches. Um, in the Jewish approach, obviously, you have the single branch. You do have separation of powers in the Israelite system. The separation of powers, however, does not manifest itself within the legal system, but outside the legal system. You have the Kehuna, you have the Ketan Torah, you have the Ketan Enucha. That's a subject for another class. Um, so this is important because today, contemporary yeshivas focus on Talmud study, the study of Gemara, as a principal medium of piety that is to uncover God's will. So if you go today to Yeshiva in Bnei Barak, if you go today to Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, the goal of Talmud study is again, to uncover the will of God. The Talmudic Yeshivot were not interested in uncovering the will of God. They were interested in God's laws as these were expressed in the texts of Israel. They did not purport to uncover God's will as God's will was disclosed once at one point in time, at one point in history in one geographical location to one person. That point in history is the year 2449 or 2448, depending on who's counting you get. It was in Har Sinai, it was to Moshe Rabbeinu. God's will was already disclosed to Moses. It was disclosed once. God did an admirably fine job at disclosing his will, it was not necessary, and he did not find it necessary to disclose his will a second time. Um, if I may, God did not forget anything when he spoke to Moses, or nor, nor did he need to correct something that he previously said. Thus, the purpose of Talmud study in the yeshivot of the Geonim was not to uncover God's will, but rather to discuss God's laws. And these laws were part of a national system of laws.
So that's the yeshivot. Having defined what the yeshivot are, we can now begin to discuss what the Talmud is. As I said, the Talmud is a collection of discussions that took place in the yeshivot by the faculty and the student body in these yeshivot, primarily related to. There was a particular subject that they discussed, primarily, but not exclusively, the Mishnah. I will explain what the Mishnah is soon. But these discussions, again, focused as they were on the Mishnah, they were quite varied. They included legal matters. They included political matters. They included ethics. They had marital advice. There's a sugya that says not to eat, or there's a uh, passage in the Gemara, not to eat vegetables in the morning. There's some passages in the Gemara, how to predict the weather, etc., etc., etc. So while I say that the discussions focus primarily on the Mishnah, it's important to emphasize that there were many discussions that were not directly related to the Mishnah. Now, these discussions, um, and Sina, tell me, should I be looking at the chats? Because I noticed there are no, some No, 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 don't worry. Sometimes we have some chat. No, you can use all your... Okay. Now, he's, here's an interesting thing, and I think it's so important when you view Judaism, when you view Talmud as a national institution, it just becomes so easy to understand because we're all used to these national institutions. So when I talk about the Congress of the United States or you have um, in, in England, I guess the House of Commons or um, you have your own parliament, you have legislators, you have uh, judges, you could, that, that's something we can all understand as Westerners. It's, it's completely um, within the realm of our common everyday knowledge. So continuing with that particular methodology. Um, I said that there were discussions that took place in the yeshivot over the course of several generations and in different yeshivot. And here's the thing, these discussions were recorded. Much as a court recorder today in a modern court transcribes the court proceedings of uh, the litigation that is taking place um, in the court. So these transcripts in modern day courts they become part of the official records of the courts. The court recordings are later studied. Uh, they're admitted into evidence. They have, they, they have the authority to set the record straight. These become the official record of what was discussed in that particular court. Let's go now to Babylonia. Let's go to Babel, to the Yeshivo. In the case of the Talmud also, the yeshiva discussions were recorded. The recordings of these discussions were organized and they became part of the official record of that yeshiva in which the discussions took place. The editors of the Talmud, many generations later, they have this huge mass of information. I mean, you can imagine, they have generations and generations of court discussions in the various yeshivot. There was primarily two courts. Um, there was two uh, primary yeshivot, uh, but not only. But there were two primary yeshivot in, in Babel. Originally, there was um, the yeshiva of Nehar De'a, which was established by Shemuel. But the yeshiva of Nehar De'a, um, because of um, you know, political, military issues, um, the city of Nehar De'a was destroyed. 
uh, so eventually became the yeshiva of Pumbedita. So the Talmidim of Shemuel, they moved, they relocated to Pumbedita and they reestablished the yeshiva of Nehav De'ah in Pumbedita or Pombedita. Actually, my father, Allah Vashalom, used to uh, pronounce it Pombedita. Um, and then uh, there was the yeshiva of Sura. The yeshiva of Sura was established by Rav. So you had these two yeshivot. Primarily, there were other yeshivot. Um, sometimes the, um, the Rosh Yeshiva, for personal reasons, didn't want to be in that particular location. For example, there was Rabah. Rabah was, I think, fourth generation um, Emoraim or fifth generation. Um, so he established the Yeshiva in Mechoza. Oh, that could, that's where he lived. So, so it wasn't like, you know, 10 Yeshivot or 20 Yeshivot. There was a small number of Yeshivot. Some, some of the Hakanim had their own private Yeshivot. That was also common. But there was always two major Yeshivot in Babel, and depending on where the majority of the Hakamim were, that's what determined which Yeshiva had the authority to legislate, to interpret, um, and, 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 and that was the seat of the National Court of the Jewish people for purposes of laws, for legal purposes. So again, the, um, the discussions that took place in the Yeshivot were recorded, and the job of Rabbeinah and Rabbasheh the editors of the Talmud was actually quite massive. They had to collect all of these official records. They had to collate them, they had to organize them. And um, they edited this material into what we today call the Talmud Babli or the Babylonian Talmud. There's a lot more to say about this. Um, and maybe in the second class, I might go into this more. There's also the Arhekala um, institution which is related to what I'm saying, but as a general matter, we have fairly um, described what the Gemara is. So now you know what discussions took place, how the discussions were recorded, why they were recorded, and how they were organized at the end. We know the subject of the discussions was the Mishnah, but not only the Mishnah. I now wanna to go to the next topic. And if, you, if, if you've noticed, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build these different blocks, put these different blocks into place. And my goal is that at the end of this, we will have a nice structure, an edifice that we can actually comprehend and understand. So the next question that I'd like to ask is, what is the Mishnah? Having determined that the primary purpose of the Talmudic discussions relates to the Mishnah and actually relates to the interpretation of the Mishnah, it's actually very important to allocate time to explain what is the Mishnah. So first of all, at the simplest level, the Mishnah is a text. It is a text that represents the oral traditions of Israel. Allow me to explain this point. And actually, before I explain what the Mishnah is, I will do something even more basic. I want to explain what a text is. The concept of text is undeveloped in Western thinking. And there are reasons for this. Uh, Greek philosophers um, uh, did not consider the written word to be something of value. Um, we know that in Christianity, they don't like the written law. Um, so there's different reasons for why the concept of text is undeveloped in Western thinking. The reasons are a great topic for another class, but that's the case. And because the concept of text is undeveloped in Western thinking, this is a bit challenging. So let me start with the word 
that I mentioned earlier, textuality. Textuality means the study of those attributes that distinguish a text as a subject matter that can be, that, that, that can be studied and analyzed. So um, if you haven't heard about uh, textuality or the study of text, that's because we're Westerners. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was exposed to these ideas, I would not have heard of the subject of textuality. Um, but it's not just that. If you don't know what textuality is, then really Talmud study is an opaque field of study because Talmud is all about textuality. I cannot overemphasize the fact. Talmud is all about textuality. Um, textuality, as noted, looks at various attributes of a text. This could be the structure of a composition, linguistic composition. It can be the function of the various parts of the composition. It could be syntax. It could be one of many things. Um, so textuality has to do with the study of text. Let's go even deeper. What is a text? Uh, so for our purposes, and to be sure, you can define it differently for different purposes, but for our purposes, we want to get into the Talmudic mode of thinking. What is a text? I will choose my father's definition of text as set forth in his book, Golden Doves with Silver Dots, and he defines it as a composition designed for transmission. It's very important. Remember those words. It's a composition, a composition of words, right? Designed for transmission. So, so here we have a composition of words strung together in sentences. Um, the sentences uh, form paragraphs. The paragraphs form pages. This composition is written by an author and he takes the composition and he transmits it to the public. That is a text. Or to be sure, in the thinking of the Israelite nation, of Am Israel, Bene Israel, the text is transmitted to the nation of Israel. So Moshe Rabbeinu, at the end of his life, he sets down the written Torah, the Torah Shebikhtab, the Hamishachum She Torah. He sets it down in writing. He completes the 13 scrolls of the Torah. What does he do with these 13 scrolls? He transmits, he physically gives the scrolls to the Jewish people. Each scroll is transmitted to one of the tribes. And then the 13th um, one is given to Shevet Levi and they put it in the, um, in the Arona Kodesh. So here we have a linguistic composition, the Torah Shebikhtab, the Hamishachum She Torah Moshe Rabbeinu, was, trans, was written not just for philosophical purposes, it was written so that it can be transmitted to the reading public, in this case, the nation of Israel. So now you understand what a text is in Jewish thinking, in Hebrew thinking, right? That's the idea of a text. Let's go a little more down the, uh, the proverbial um, rabbit hole. Based on what we just studied, 
We are now in a position to begin to understand the Mishnayot, what the Mishnah is. But there's still another piece of the puzzle that I need to put into place. Let's talk about the great Tana Rabbi Akiva. You all heard, no doubt, of Rabbi Akiva. He lived at the end of the Second Commonwealth. Um, he saw the destruction of the Beth HaMikdash, the Bayit Shani. Rabbi Akiva undertook a monumental project together with the Hachamim of his generation. Let me explain to you what it is that Rabbi Akiva did. Until this time, the only body that had the authority to receive the legal Jewish traditions was the Supreme Court of Israel, or the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin sat physically in the Beit HaMikdash. It was the job of the Sanhedrin, or one of the functions of the Sanhedrin, one of the main functions of the Sanhedrin was to receive the oral tradition of the Jewish people and to transmit these traditions down to the next generation of Sanhedrin. Meaning, who had the authority? If I have a question, how many melachot are there on Shabbat? Who has the authority to tell me how many melachot there are on Shabbat? Uh, the Torah Shabbat doesn't say this, right? So we need the oral traditions. The only one who had the authority was the Sanhedrin. Let's say, just to explain this matter, let's say the Sanhedrin, they tell me that there are 39 melachot on Shabbat. And I find an ancient writing. I make an archeological discovery of an ancient, ancient biblical figure, the great Jeremiah. And in this writing, Jeremiah says, no, there are 43 melachot on Shabbat. Now, this is Jeremiah. Now, all the members of the Sanhedrin will quickly acknowledge that none of these members have reached the intellectual or spiritual standing of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the great Nevi'im of the Jewish people. Who do I listen to? Do I listen to this ancient text that until now was not known that they just discovered it? Or do I listen to the Sanhedrin? Who has the authority to tell me what the Torah Shebe'al Peh is? Who has the authority to tell me how many melachot there are on Shabbat? And the answer is, of course, and obviously the Sanhedrin. This is a matter of national law. It is the national institutions of the Jewish people that are explicitly authorized in the Torah to, trans, to receive the Torah Shebe'al Peh and to transmit the Torah Shebe'al Peh. It is not a matter of personal endeavor, of individual greatness. I could be the greatest mind that ever lived, and I still don't have the authority to receive the Torah Shebe'al Peh unless I do it as a member of the Sanhedrin. So it's not an individual that receives the Torah Shebe'al Peh. So that's a Sanhedrin. It's important to understand that. This is very similar to the, I know many of you are in England. This is very similar to the British uh, common law system. In fact, I would, I would say that there is a strong similarity between the British common law system and this institution of the Sanhedrin, right? Um, in, in both cases, um, uh, these legal traditions uh, governing how laws are interpreted and applied, uh, these traditions were received by and transmitted by the courts, right? So if you look at British common law, there's a lot of court law there that each court has its own approach, right? In the way they um, express the laws, right? But the courts ultimately have to be part of a chain of a tradition, right? So they may change the wording, they may change the way they express the ideas, 
but you can't just ignore what the previous courts said. So um, I know in the American common law system, it's like this, but I'm pretty sure that in the English common law system, it's like this as well, where the idea of common law is the courts receive the laws, the courts transmit the laws, the courts apply the laws. Is there a specific formulation? Um, can I go to a judge in one of these courts and say, uh, yes, but Mr. Professor of Law in Oxford University, assuming they have a law school, which I, I don't know, um, in, in, in um, Harvard University Law School says that it's like this, it's irrelevant. He's not a judge. He, he's not a recipient of the common law. He, it may be that he makes a good point, right? But ultimately it's up to the court to interpret, to, to receive the laws, to interpret the laws and to apply the laws. So the Sanhedrin were the recipients of the Jewish common law, right? That's our common law. So again, there's a similarity, be a similarity between the way the Sanhedrin received the Torah Shabbat Alpha and the way courts in common law jurisdictions receive the common law. Uh, there's, an, there's also another similarity. In both cases, as I've noted, there was no official formulation of the laws. I know that over the course of time, some uh, legislative bodies decided to set forth the common law in statutory law. That happens, but it doesn't have to happen. And it doesn't always happen. So you can have, for example, what is a Torah? What is negligence? What are the elements of negligence? So the court has its own common law traditions of what constitutes negligence, what constitutes gross negligence, what constitutes what is considered reasonable, what is considered unreasonable. If you are unreasonable and you behave in a certain way and damage somebody, you, you have been negligent, you may have been grossly negligent, you may have been reckless. So it's up to the common law judges, having received the common law of negligence, to now interpret and apply these laws. So you see, there's no fixed formulation. That's important. Arambam discusses this in Mordene Bukhim. When the Sanhedrin was around, there was no fixed formulation of the Torah Shebe'al-Peh. So if I wanted to know what the law, there was no Harambam, there was no Mishneh Torah. There was no Mishnayot. There was no Shulchan Aruch. There was no Rabbi Yishak Al-Fasi, the Reed. The Torah was a common law, meaning the, I'm sorry, the Torah Shabbat. The Torah Shabbat was a common law system received by the Dayanim, transmitted by the Dayanim, and Amisel studied the Torah from these same Hachamim slash Dayanim, but there was no fixed formulation for the law. Just like, again, in the English system of common law, there was at some point in history, I don't know what's happening today, there was no fixed formulation of the common law. And, and, and this common law, the Jewish common law, is the oral law. It is the Torah Shebe'al Peh. It started with, as a historical matter, it started with Moshe Rabbeinu. He received the Torah Shebe'al Peh in Har Sinai. He taught the Torah Shebe'al Peh to the entire Jewish nation for 40 years in the desert. And this Torah Shebe'al Peh, or if you prefer the uh, word common law, because I think common law works just well, governed the Jewish people for centuries and millennia. It was never set forth in an official writing. It was never set forth in an official formulation. And it didn't need to be, because for so long as the Jewish people had courts, we had a legal system, we had national institutions, we had um, independence, we had autonomy, we didn't need to set down these um, teachings into a written uh, form. And this brings me to the third similarity between the Torah Shabbat and the English common law system. And again, Haramban discusses this in the Modene Bukhim. 
In both cases, the law was not static, precisely because the law was not set forth in a specific formulation. It allowed the Dayanim to perhaps refine things, right? To perhaps develop the law as society develops. You know, people are often so frustrated. Why can't we, uh, why can't we do things? For example, a, a big, a big discussion that happens all the time is, what is the status of electricity on Yom Tov? Um, why, why can't we deal with this? You know, why can't we institute new laws? Well, we can't because we don't have a, the national institutions that would allow us to institute laws governing electricity, right? Um, so, um, and, and, and other matters, there are many, many contemporary matters that come up in the modern context that are not fully covered by the halakha as, as it, it is before us today. Today, the halakha before us is kind of a static system in many ways, in many ways. But it wasn't like this in the days of the Sanhedrin. So for example, an issue that comes up, why can't I shave on Cholomoyed? I know some people shave on Cholomoyed, other people don't shave on Cholomoyed. Um, they say, oh, does it make sense? Why shouldn't I be able to shave? Um, you know, the whole idea of not shaving was so that I come into the Moed. It has the exact opposite effect for those of you who study the subject. Well, why can't we study? Why can't we deal with this effectively and reach a consensus, a national consensus? Well, we can't, no, because we don't have the national court, the Supreme Court to deal with it. So back then in Harambam, again, I keep saying Harambam discusses in the Moed because it's a fascinating chapter, he points out that the whole legal system of the Jewish people was completely different. When you have the Sanhedrin, it was a dynamic system. Um, so we received it from Moshe Rabbeinu, he taught it to the Jewish people, but because it was the dynamic system, the oral law in the days of Ezra HaSofet was not quite the same as the oral law in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, for example, in the days of Ezra HaSofet, they used to do Kiddush on wine, Friday night. I don't know how they did it in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu. I'm just, we don't have that information, right? Um, the oral law in the days of Rabbi Akiva was different than the oral law in the days of Israel HaSofet. So for so long as you had the Sanhedrin and the Jewish court system with the Supreme Court in the Bet HaMikdash, so this was a viable and effective way at not just establishing the national laws, but allowing the national laws to develop with the development of society. Um, I just want to say this, it's not that the law was changing, it was growing, right? It's not that, you know, there were, there, there's, it's, it's not a free-for-all, but that's a subject for another class, right? There's, you know, what one betin can do, what they can't do, right? Subject for another class. Let's go back to the Biakiva. During the generation of Biakiva, the Roman, with the Roman takeover of Judea and the destruction of the Second Commonwealth, it became clear to the Biakiva that the Jewish judicial authorities, the Supreme Court of the Jewish people were no longer a viable mechanism for transmitting the oral law, for transmitting the Torah Shabbat. And that with the liquidation of these institutions will come the liquidation of the Jewish common law. But Rabbi Akiva understood that's what's going to happen. If the Sanhedrin is destroyed, if the national courts of the Jewish people are destroyed, well, what's going to happen to the common law? It'll be poof, gone. So Rabbi Akiva, understanding what's about to happen, he spearheaded the following project. The collection of the various oral law or common 
law traditions. The organization of these common law traditions and the redacting of these traditions into an official formulation or into a specific textual format, a text that will be accessible and transmissible. Uh, to make uh, sure this point was clear, um, and, I, and, I, and I think I said it, until now, the Sanhedrin can receive the law in any way they want to. For example, I want to talk about Kiryat Shema at night. From the time that the stars come out, I can say it like that if I'm the sunny dream. Um, when you can read Kiryat Shema at night, when it's nighttime for sure. Um, or I can say, you know, this not, not, not the most eloquent way to say it, but it really didn't matter how I said it. There was no formulation, right? So you understand what he's going to say is from now on, if you want to express this law, the authority will lie with the specific language that I'm now going to give you, says Rabbi Akiva. And it's going to be as follows. That's the official and authoritative formulation of that law. That's the way it should be expressed. Um, I'm going to explain this more fully because I, 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 I would imagine that this may be a bit foreign. Um, but you see there's a shift in strategy, there's a shift in an approach. The approach now is create a text, a specific formulation that will comprise the entire oral law of the nation of Israel. Now, in order to undertake this project, the Biakiba started the project, it took several generations, we'll get into that later. Um, in order to undertake this project, there was the necessity to develop new textual concepts. And the first textual concept that was developed is the distinction between oral texts and written texts. There's a lot to say about that, a lot. But just for these purposes, put that on the side. Maybe we'll get back to that later. I'm not sure if we will have the time, maybe in class two. But that's one distinction. There is there is Torah Shebikhtav, there is Torah Shebealpeh. And you're familiar with the famous uh, Talmudic uh, statement, Devarim Shebikhtav, Iyat Tarashayel Omram Alpeh. Devarim Shebealpeh, Iyat Tarashayel Omram Bikhtav. The famous Talmudic statement says, if something is written, it may only be expressed as a writing. You may not express it in an oral format. If something is oral, an oral text, it may not be expressed as a written text, right? Now, what does that mean? Uh, good question. But you see how the idea of distinguishing between oral and written became fundamental. Okay, so let's let's go back to the starting point of this so the starting point of this project was a canonized national text of israel the 24 books of the bible achieved the status of a written text that's number one nothing else has the status of a written text only the 24 books that were um, accepted by the jewish court as the writings of israel were canonized nothing else this has certain legal and functional ramifications. But what's important is that all other texts after the, um, after the Bible, after the canonization of the Bible, 
All other texts have the status of an oral text. Um, now, writing has specific textualological dimensions. Um, for example, in the case of a written text, the text itself is duly registered. It consists of a specific arrangement of letters. And every single letter is, um, is essential for the validity of the text. Um, what do you call a Jewish scribe, a sofer? And what word do you see in the word sofer? Safar, mispar, number. But that's not a coincidence because every letter was duly registered, was counted. And if a single letter is missing from a Sefer Torah, the Sefer Torah does not have the status of a Sefer Torah. If you add that one letter, it now becomes a written text and you can read from it in public. This isn't the case with the Mishnah. If I, for example, write down the Mishnah, then I skip a letter or don't skip a letter, or I put a cholam when there shouldn't be a cholam, or I put, put a yod when there shouldn't be a yod, it doesn't affect in any way the validity of the Mishnah. Right? So you see um, that the sensitivity to written text wasn't just, oh, do you put it in writing? But there was a different approach uh, to the written text. Um, I see that we're coming closer to the end, and I do have a hard stop at 429, but I'm going to continue. Let me just think about, okay, let's go back to the Biakiva. Let's, let's do this. There's, there's some things I, 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 perhaps we can say in the next class, but for now, let's go back to the Biakiva. So um, during the days of the Biakiva, the Bet HaMikdash is destroyed. The city of Beter, I know people uh, pronounce it Betar, right? So there was, I think, a soccer team in Israel called Beitar Yerushalayim. Maybe they also have Beitar Amatgan and Beitar Haifa. I'm not sure how that works. Maybe that's similar to the National League and American League in America. You have Beitar and you have Maccabi. So I'm just trying to understand this, but I can't quite understand it fully. Um, maybe somebody on the forum will explain it to me one day. Nevertheless, Beitar or Betar is actually Biter. Biter was a city where the Hakamim war. This was destroyed uh, years after the destruction of the Second Beit HaMikdash, and at this point, um, the, the Jewish nation in Judea, um, for all purposes, ceased to exist as a national um, uh, entity. So you understand that at this point, Rabbi Akiva is doing a great historical service for the Jewish people because he instituted the idea of an official formulation, which will be an oral text and that official formulation, which eventually was called the Mishnah, he didn't finish it yet, that's going to replace the Sanhedrin. Until now, I said, if you wanted to get what the law of the Jewish people is, what is the Torah Shabbat, you would go to the Sanhedrin. They had the authority to transmit what the law is. At this point, there was a shift. There's no Sanhedrin. You want to know what is the official um, presentation of the Torah Shabbat? Here it is. It's in this book, in the book called the Mishnayot. So the project that Rabbi Akiva undertook was to collect all of the legal traditions taught by the various schools and the various Batedin and to organize them into a unified book 
This book would have the status of an oral text, more on that perhaps in the next class. Um, but remember, the common law traditions until now were oral. So it makes sense that if the common law traditions were oral, oral the status of the Mishnah should be an oral text. Why, why should that change, right? Um, the difference between the original common law traditions and the Mishnah as a common law of the Jewish people, as an oral law of the Jewish people was that the common law traditions were received and transmitted by the Sanhedrin, each in his own language. There was no fixed text, but from this point onwards, there is this fixed text. And if you want to teach the Torah of the Jewish people, it is through this text. This text now represents the Torah of the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin disappeared. And in its place, you don't have a body of people. You have a book, the Mishnayot. And this book, the Mishnayot, is authoritative. It has the authority. And you can quote the Mishnayot. And you can tell somebody the Mishnah says this. Uh, the Biakiva says this, the Bireza says this. This is the official formulation of the um, Torah de Alpeh. Um, as you no doubt are thinking about this, the ramifications of formulating the oral law into a book are obviously substantial. Um, but I want to tell you that it's not just the ramifications of formulating the Mishnah into an oral book that are substantial. The very project, the very undertaking of this project had national ramifications. And by the way, the ramifications were so substantial, just the undertaking of the project, that there was strong opposition against Rabbi Akiva. Many of the Hakamim did not welcome what Rabbi Akiva was doing. Um, there are actually incredible stories one story is that Rabbi Akiva had to run up a, a day tree because uh, one of the elder rabbis was going to have him caned. I think that's the term they use in Singapore. They were, he was going to give him malkut. He was going to give him malkut and he had to run away to save himself. So Rabbi Akiva was a controversial figure. He comes up with this controversial idea. It wasn't just accepted, nor should it have been, because it's radical. It's a radical idea. Um, so let's see some of the... Uh, in the, well, I think this would be a good place to, to, to stop. I, in the next class, um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you how the project of the Mishnayot resulted in new concepts and new ideas, meaning not the Mishnayot itself, that obviously, but the very project and the very undertaking of, the, of, of this project resulted in a shift of, in perspective uh, and a dramatic shift in perspective among the rabbinic authorities and many new ideas were developed because of this project. So there's a lot to say about this, but just, you know, kind of to close the circle. So the Talmud is the interpretation of the Mishnah, right? Um, we need that. We'll explain why in the next class. But the Mishnah itself was a massive project. And in a sense, well, not just in a sense, it saved the Jewish people. If it wasn't for the Mishnayot, with the um, destruction of the Sanhedrin, there would have been no authority in Israel. And you know, you think that things are a bit, you know, confusing nowadays. Wow! Imagine that there was no Mishnah. That everybody says, "Yeah, you can go to any person, Jewish person in the world, uh, right? Any Chacham, any Rabbi." Yeah, well, yeah, of course we accept the Mishnayot, right? That's like that's the uh, bedrock of everything. 
So that's what Rabbi Akiva did. The Gemara interprets the Mishnah, and I'm looking forward to the uh, opportunity to continue this and tell you a little more about what the Gemara is. And um, thank you. hopefully that will be soon. Rabbi Faur, thank you. You've enriched us. Um, fundamental, fundamental. I don't want to call it basics because it's not, but at the same time, it is the foundations of our sacred um, tradition to learn about how all of these things developed and where they came from and where they're going. So, Rav, thank you so, so much for that. I cannot wait for part two. We may have to uh, steal you for a part three. We do have you from July for a weekly Talmud class, so where we'll be you know, digging in even more detail and analyzing the sugyot. But uh, thank you so much for that. I know you have a hard stop. It's 3.30 p.m. Eastern time for you. So it's in the middle of your work day. Really, really appreciate it, Rav. And uh, really looking forward to a couple of weeks' time for part two. I think everybody would agree. That was fantastic. All the comments are coming in uh, saying thank you. So uh, enriched. I can't wait to review. So thank you, Rav. With pleasure. A pleasure and looking forward to the next uh, class. All the best to uh, everybody. Take care. Take care.